You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has warned there's a strong possibility that the UK will fail to broker a trade deal with the EU. We'll cover that. The HSE's Chief Clinical Officer, Dr Colin Henry, joins us live in studio for the latest on COVID-19 and the vaccine. And ahead of All-Ireland Hurling Weekend, one business owner has a warning to the fans. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Virgin Media's political correspondent Gavin Riley joins us now as yet another Brexit deadline has been set this time for Sunday. Gavin, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, talking things down again tonight. But is that just another Boris bluff that we shouldn't believe? I suppose you could question whether it was in Boris Johnson's interest to try and talk down the prospects if he think there is something to be got at the end of the day. Maybe he can try to present it as being this final vanquished European dragon that he's going to be able to overcome with the sword of St George or whatever. Um, but certainly the mood music is, is not very good. Now, of course, in this island we're used to lengthy debt negotiations and deadlines being missed and being expended with, particularly when it comes to Northern Ireland. But usually there are two reasons why a deadline might be continually pushed. One, because the deadline which is currently there isn't going to be there to get the deal in time, that there is momentum there and that we don't want to be bound by an artificial deadline. Or secondly, it might just be that we're trying to buy ourselves one final gasp because there doesn't seem to be very much progress. And I think the statement last night after the, the joint dinner in Brussels between Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson spoke an awful lot. It was almost like something from Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, you know, divorce thing. They were talking about how we now understand each other's positions, but they're still very far apart. And it's very difficult to see after months of talking about these three issues, fisheries, governance and the level playing field and state aid and the likes. After so many months of talking about that, how you could possibly pull a deal out now. Well, let's move on from conscious uncoupling to the possibility that maybe the British are being asked for something that's unfair, that if they agree to a level playing field now, fair enough, but how can they be really expected to agree to changes in the future which they don't know what they're going to be? Well, this is a very fair point, and it was one point that was articulated by a source in the Sunday Times of the weekend. They were making the argument that, for example, right now on agriculture, you have common standards all across the continent. But say, for example, the EU wants to change the number of pigs that you can put into a sty. If the UK doesn't immediately follow those rules, straight away it could be subject to what they're calling lightning tariffs. Now that obviously is a very difficult thing for the UK to tolerate. The whole point of Brexit was to break away from European rules and to be allowed to have your own say. But this kind of goes to the core of why the Brexit talks are being so difficult and when it comes to trade why things are being so difficult. Every other trade deal in the world, whether it's even, and the UK even knows this because it's had deals with you know, Japan and other uh, Commonwealth countries in the last couple of months that are being lined up ready to go. All those deals are about convergence. Ultimately, they're about both sides agreeing to adopt the same standards so that the same products can then move over and back without any checks or tariffs in between. The UK is currently already signing up to all of the European standards and wants to break away from them. So it's a totally different mindset. And of course, it's completely in keeping with the whole idea of Brexit, which was independence. Now, Tisha Miel Martin today was saying there can't be winners and losers out 
out of this. And I get what he's saying from the point of view that a trade deal is supposed to confer benefits to mm. both. But isn't there a real possibility that even if there is a deal or if there's no deal, that we will have losers on both sides? But again, this goes back to the whole point of divergence, because if you already have completely seamless trade in all areas and you have a, almost a single market in almost every area and suddenly you're disrupting that, then it can only cause disruption. And of course, the, the, the status quo means having to buy into things politically as well. So the more integration you have on trade levels, then the more integration you need to have politically, which is, again, the whole point of Brexit in the first place. They want to break away. So even if there is a deal, and this is a point that people should perhaps recognise as they're listening to the developments in the next three days or so, even if there is a deal, it's not going to be status quo. It's going to mean impact in consumer rights. It could even potentially have meant disruption in air travel, for example. Nothing is going to be quite the same afterwards. And we're going to be getting to that later in the programme. But finally, there's the fear of a lot of ill will and ill feeling between the UK and the EU as a result of all of this. But where would that leave Ireland? Because we're in a different position to the rest of the European Union, sharing a land border and sharing a language and a lot of culture and more economic ties mm. with Britain than anyone else in the EU. Well, at the very least, we now know that it is going to be an open land border, and that's a result of the separate parallel deal that was done between the European Commission and Michael Gove this week. They have now in, uh, have an agreement about how to implement the open border and the sea border, so that at least on land, there is no concern about that. You might argue that it actually puts Ireland in something of an advantageous position, because we've talked about how Northern Ireland will now have the best of both worlds, access to Britain's market, but also access to the single European market. Ireland could almost act as something of a bridge. It has been something that the IDA has leveraged quite a lot, that we have access to America, we're the nearest speaking country, highly educated, English speaking, that there's a lot to be gained by having access to Europe, but also being perhaps a little bit more American in mindset. And maybe it could be an advantage that Ireland is able to lever if everything goes well. Gavin Riley, thank you very much for joining us. We will be coming back to Brexit later in the programme and the cost to Irish consumers, given that your Amazon orders and your ASOS dresses could be much more expensive and more difficult to return. That'll be a little bit later. Now, there has been a further reduction in the number of people in hospital in Ireland with COVID-19. Dr Colm Henry, the HSE Chief Clinical Officer, joins us now to discuss that and more. Colm, so thank you very much for joining us. The good news today, we have the lowest incidence rate in the EU 14-day incidence rate. But how concerned are you that that benefit that has been hard fought for could be lost over the month of December? Well, it is good news. Our two-week uh, two incidence rate is now 80 per 100,000. Remember, back at the end of October, that was 309. That's a 75% drop. And across Europe, we see a much higher 14-day uh, incidence rate. And as you point out, we are now at that best in Europe. But the situation in Europe, in healthcare systems across Europe, including not just acute admissions, but unfortunately also admissions to intensive care units, particularly in some places like Wales, where we see very high levels and we see pressures on intensive care units, 81 people ventilated, over 1,800 admissions, underlines the fact that we're that even when we're going through a patch like this now, where we're best in Europe, we're only ever two weeks away from surge of the virus causing illness in vulnerable groups, admissions and intensive care units under pressure. But yet we have 310 new confirmed cases today and we're getting figures in the 200s and 300s in recent weeks. And I think you wanted to get down to about 100 possibly by this stage. But even so, are the actual overall confirmed numbers really the important ones? Because it seems we have a relatively low number going into hospital and even lower going into ICUs. We do and that's because of the measures we took and also because of the way people adhere to those measures, despite 
the occasional pictures and the videos we see in social media. The truth is, we see this through the instant rates in different groups, is we see falling rates in all age groups, including that 18 to 25. That's where this particular surge started off, that 18 to 25 age group. Only a few weeks ago, that was at 450 per 100,000. It's now 130. So despite all these individual stories and some of the videos we see, what we the story of the past four weeks has been one of compliance, adherence and improved performance. Yeah, well, without in any way wishing to downplay the seriousness of the illness, could it be that the illness is going to people who are not going to be too badly affected by it and at least they're staying away from the vulnerable people, which is why we have the low level of hospitalisations? Our experience has shown and internationally has shown that, that if you get high levels of community transmission, it cannot be contained in one age group. Let me tell you, Matt, for example, healthcare workers in nursing homes or hospitals, often younger people, they live in the community. And we've seen in some of the hospital outbreaks we've seen recently, such as in Letterkenny Hospital, like a very, uh, an outbreak that caused great disruption to services. And obviously it was a great threat to people in a very vulnerable situation. Where there were high levels of community transmission, where healthcare workers live, it's impossible, despite all the most stringent measures you put in place to avoid the virus entering a nursing home or hospital. There's a strong correlation between community transmission and outbreaks in vulnerable settings, hospitals or nursing homes, and even the best infection prevention control measures cannot prevent that. Well then, what about a vaccine for the nursing homes and for the hospitals? How quickly do you think you'll be able to roll it out in both of those places? But clearly there's a process to go through. We've heard from earlier today from your own news and otherwise that the European Medicines Agency is is meeting to look at the Pfizer vaccine at the end of December. We've already seen approval and rollout in the UK. And I expect, based on the prioritisation that we're deciding in this country, in line with what what other countries are doing is that we will prioritise these vulnerable groups first, people in residential care settings, the workers in residential care settings, health workers in direct contact, so that we prevent the worst manifestation of the virus in those ill groups. So how many numbers in those groups and how quickly do you think can the vaccine be got to those? Can it be done, for example, by the end of January? This is a, a non-precedented vaccine uh, task ahead of us. Hence, a task force that crosses all government departments, led by Professor Brian McCraw. We have, uh, we've had some experience with this before. We have a National Immunisation Office, which is a yearly experience in rolling out the flu vaccine. And only back in the 2009 H1N1 epidemic uh, administered over 1.1 million vaccines. So there is experience in this but, country. But how many would have gone into sort of the nursing homes and hospitals quickly? Can you get all of those done, for example, that number and the workers done, say, within a month of having the vaccine. In parallel with, with us waiting for the approval of the EMA, we are setting up uh, cold chains, we are setting up storage, we are arranging, uh, we, we are part of the European-wide advanced purchasing agreement for five uh, vaccines. We will be, They will begin to arrive and once the European Medicines Agency gives us approval, we will be ready to go with those priority groups. And can I just say, Matt, the, the, the first aim people must understand is the first aim of us with this vaccine is to reduce illness and death in those vulnerable groups. It will take some considerable time before we reach that ultimate aim of having what's called herd immunity, having a significant proportion of the population immune against the, vir uh, the virus. That which we, which we don't know yet because the phase three trials have given us some information on efficacy and safety, but it's not until we begin to roll it out that we have more information on does it prevent transmission? Does it create herd immunity? That's our ultimate goal to free us from the shackles of COVID-19 now. How are you going to tackle what people are calling vaccine uh, negativity? Particularly when you consider that when it comes to the flu vaccine, you haven't always been successful in getting even medical staff, nurses and hospitals to take it up. We see the current flu vaccine 
for children, it seems to be that an enormous amount of the doses have still not been administered because of a lack of demand. So if that's the experience with the flu vaccine, what makes you think you'll do better with the COVID-19 vaccine? There are some incredible success stories. One of the greatest success stories in medicine during my lifetime and your lifetime has been vaccines. We have seen diseases eliminated. Uh, polio is almost eliminated worldwide. There are diseases that were seen in my and your childhood that are not seen now. There are diseases now that junior doctors in training wouldn't recognise. Uh, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, these cause considerable uh, morbidity, uh, disability and death. And look at the uptakes for these. For the measles, it's 92%. Uh, for uh, you, you talk about flu vaccine, we, we see it began some years ago, we saw uptake levels of 25%. Now we're seeing levels of 65% in the over 65s this season. People, uh, once this, the vaccine is shown to be safe and effective and it's promoted by doctors and explained in an empathic and clear way, the population will trust will see the benefits. Well, what, do you worry though about things like the reports that people with certain allergies are reacting adversely to the vaccine? There's nothing extraordinary about that. Uh, people, uh, those reports in the UK pertained, as I understand it, to people who had uh, allergies and carry the EpiPen. And there, for any vac vaccine administration, there are exceptions, people for whom there's contraindications. Uh, and those, in, in the rare event, people who have severe allergies that are known for either medications or food, uh, clearly it's a contraindication for them to be given the vaccine. There's nothing extraordinary about that story. Okay, what about the Tonish's comments today, Leo Varadkar, when he indicated that there is a possibility of a third lockdown coming towards us in January and February? Is that something that you see as a real possibility? Um, it, looking forward, I have to try and remain positive because it's in our power for it not to happen. And I, I, I would uh, I would use your my appearance here tonight to say to people to do their bit because one thing we know is if people revert to the pre-pandemic ways over the Christmas period, where the average number of close contacts you may have had was 10 to 15, if you mix in, in inside settings, uh, congregated settings, if there's alcohol and no mask usage, we will see that they're the ideal settings for the, viral, the virus to grow and transmit. And we will see levels, unfortunately, if that R, famous R value goes up to two, we will see levels of 400 to 600 new cases uh, per day at the beginning of January and 1,200 by the middle of January. Many of us have taken great joy and comfort out of having a lot of sport to watch at the weekends in recent months, particularly the All-Ireland Hurling and Football Championships. We've reached the final stage now this weekend. And Aidan O'Shea, the Mayo football captain, looking ahead to next week, did express disappointment today that family members were not be in Croke Park to see him and his colleagues play. So for the hurling final, for example, on Sunday, when Waterford play against Limerick, what would be wrong with, in the massive stadiums we have, Hogan Stand, Cusick Stand, in Croke Park, with allowing maybe 500 people in, like they do up north of the border, they allow 2,000 people into a Premier League match in England. Why not create that little bit of atmosphere for families at the All-Ireland Finals? Matt, you began the interview by asking about pointing out we're the best in Europe. We're the best in Europe, not for one single action. We're the best in Europe for a, a, a complete menu of actions that we all stuck to. Uh, to pick out one action and say, we won't do that because of this particular setting this coming weekend, then the same exception could be applied to another. And the sum total of all those exceptions means you negate all the good work that's been done. So I mean, I, my answer to you is, it, it, we, we can we can uh, focus on one particular so action where there's social restriction, where there's minimal contact, and say maybe an exception there would, would could be allowed. But if we did that to, 
to all the settings, we wouldn't be in the position we are today where we're down to those number of cases. A lot of parents are wondering when it comes to sport, why it is their children are not actually playing competitive games, be it with clubs or with schools, when they see things like the hurling of football going on. And they also make the point that if it's all right for adults to go to restaurants and gastropubs, why isn't it all right for kids to be playing each other in schools' competitions, for example? But clearly we, want, we, we, we have been aware through the first lockdown of, of the great harm that was done to children through school closure and through the lockdown, particularly for young children. And one of the essential things we want to get moving again is, of course, sports and interaction for children. The best way to do that is for all of us to get the community transmission down to the lowest possible level. That will give us the confidence to advise people that it's safe and it's reasonable for people to congregate in settings such as sports settings, which are healthy and a, a normal part of childhood development. But to do that, we must, we must get the community transmission levels down to as low as possible so we can make choices. If, we, if the R value goes up, if the number of cases go up, it narrows the number of choices we can make, whether it's an all-iron event at the weekend or whether it's school matches. Yeah, but isn't there something odd about not being able to play school hurling or Gaelic football or soccer or hockey or basketball or whatever matches at a time when the parents of those children actually are going to pubs and restaurants? When placed side by side, yes, it, it appears incongruent, absolutely. And I, 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 for one, would love to see child competitive sports restart in a way that's safe and a way that we can ensure that there's no transmission not just between children where it's a relatively benign illness, between children and those in vulnerable groups who are older. I'm probably asking a lot of questions which suggest a return to normality. How long do you see it being with a rollout of a vaccine that life will start returning to normal? Because the Taoiseach was talking about next summer being able to go away on holidays. Is he being overly confident or would you share that aspiration? That was the tonish of that today. We, we all want to see something we can hope for, uh, whether it's holidays. Uh, most of us are focusing on holidays in Ireland now, which is not, 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 not the brightest prospect in the middle of winter, as we know, except, of course, in Cork. But, but uh, what I would say is that uh, is the vaccine, let's look at this in stages. There's the danger for us as a people is looking at the vaccine as a separate measure which will bring us out of this lockdown and bring us out of this bind or vice that we're in with COVID-19. It's much better to see it as part of the suite of measures, including those public health measures we're all so familiar with now. What we will do, what the vaccine will do initially, will be, we, hopefully, once it's, uh, uh, the EMA approves, approves it, will be reduce illness and death in those vulnerable groups. As we build it up through the population and we learn more about its ability to reduce transmission of the virus between people, then our hope is that the vaccine will reach that thing that, call that we see in measles and other, other viruses of herd immunity, where such a significant proportion of the population have immunity, which is, we're not quite sure about yet with the vaccine, but we'll have got immunity. And hence, we'll be able to ease those restrictions that we're all used to, not just in Ireland, but across the whole world. Certainly hope you're right with that. Thank you very much, Dr. Colm Henry, for joining us. Now, after the break, another Brexit deadline has been set for this weekend, but will it be met? And what is any deal or no deal going to mean for you, the consumer? Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Well, joining us now, consumer affairs journalist Sinead Ryan, Fine Gael TD for Limerick, Kieran O'Donnell, and live from Brussels, Minister for European Affairs Thomas Byrne. And I'll start with you, Minister, because we were he hearing earlier that Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, is going on about a strong possibility that no deal will be struck. Is this just bluff and bluster on his part? Is there a feeling in Brussels that a deal can be done and is near? Well, I think people believe that a deal certainly can be done. Um, the question is to make sure that we're all winners out of it, because I think that we will be. I think the narrative has moved to Boris needs a victory and therefore someone might lose, or Europe needs a victory and Boris must lose. But I think, I think the Taoiseach was right when he said that, you know, we can all win from this and all negotiations are a bit of give and take uh, to make sure that we can all win. Um, I have to think, though, that the consequences of a no-deal Brexit are really so severe to the British economy likely to our economy and certainly to much of the European economy as well, that uh, cool heads will, heads will prevail in London uh, over the next few days uh, as those talks continue uh, to make sure that we can get this over the line because it is really unthinkable as to, as to what would happen in, in the new year. What gives your confidence that there'll suddenly be pragmatism in the British position given the ideological stances that they've taken ever since the Brexit referendum vote four years ago? Well, I think in this particular case, ideology will get you for about three weeks till the 31st of December. But I think the stark reality of uh, hard Brexit, and it is a hard Brexit anyway, because they're leaving the single market, but the no-deal Brexit, that stark reality of job losses uh, and economic decline will come hurtling uh, at the British government. I think they know it. I've no doubt that they know it. Uh, and I firmly believe that they will, you know, if they're, th if they're thinking like that, which I have to think that they would be, uh, then the conclusion is that a deal is what they would want. And that's a deal uh, that means no tariffs. But don't forget, as I said, they've left the single market customs union. So there's a lot of hassle now coming down the tracks for everybody with Brexit in terms of our trading relationship with Britain. And much of the preparation that the government has set out uh, and has encouraged people to do, and it's all available at gov.ie forward slash Brexit, applies deal or no deal. A lot of changes are happening on the 1st of January, regardless of the outcome of these talks. I know we've been warned many times about the threat to flights in the event of no deal being struck, but I suspect many people had forgotten about the possibility of air transport and other links between Britain and the European Union being sundered. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what efforts have been made by the European Union to make sure that at least that doesn't happen. Well, I think, um, I suppose you, some might say, finally, the European Commission has published some of its uh, no deal contingency planning. And there was some pressure from some member states who wouldn't be as directly affected uh, as we would be to publish this some time ago. But I think it was felt that that could indicate maybe that we wanted no deal or it could indicate maybe a position on the negotiation. So that type of publication was left at the last possible moment. But I think the, the reality has hit home now that we have three weeks left and they, they've got to make sure uh, that these things uh, continue. And I think a lot of the Brexit reality is now hitting home in Britain and indeed in Ireland because we're going to suffer some of the fallout as well deal or no deal, but 
you know, things like Britain, Britain, British people having to get visas to go to European countries, not ours, of course, with the common travel area, uh, if they're going to stay more than three months. Um, the issue of companies registering for customs, we, we have a big concern with traders in Britain, whether they're ready or not. The import of chilled meats uh, into the European Union, sausages, I think, will disappear from Irish, so certainly Republic of Irish uh, shelves uh, from, if they're imported from Britain, things like that, that um, which, are, which are not the most important, but any effect on trade or any reduction in trade, I think, is damaging uh, to the economy. Okay. And there's lots of other things. Kira O'Donnell, the minister there made an interesting comment that to other countries, what's happening may not be as important as it is to us. Is there any fear that the EU could do a deal with the British, which is in the EU's best interest, which may not necessarily be ours? I don't think so. I think uh, Europe and ourselves have worked very much in harmony together. Uh, this, in terms of the withdrawal agreement, I think uh, Barnier is very, very steadfast behind Ireland. I think with all these negotiations, they're going to go to the brink. Uh, Boris Johnson is going to take it to the brink. I believe there will be a deal. Sorry, it's not just Boris Johnson taking mm. it to the brink. It could be as well that the French are taking it to the brink, Macron, in relation to fisheries. I mean, could we have a situation where no deal happens because of French fishermen? That's not going to be much use to us in Ireland, is well, it? Well, no, I mean, the key features really are, uh, Matt, that we have said that no side, it must be a level playing field across a range of areas, including fisheries. And I certainly would have confidence in Michel Barnier and in the negotiating team, and obviously our own Taoiseach and Tarnish, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, that we will get a deal that benefits both Ireland and Europe. Because at the end of the day, the Sorry, how much involvement does our Taoiseach, Tarnish, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, really have at this stage of the negotiations? Well, they're, in, they're dealing with Michel Barnier on a daily basis. And clearly, the Taoiseach was in the European Council of Ministers uh, meeting today. So obviously there is, Michel Barnier is leading the negotiations, but Ireland as a country very much involved in these discussions. The stakes are very high for us. Okay, Sinead Ryan, let's have a look at some of the practical considerations mm. for our viewers at home. Because I think there's a certain degree of shock for anyone who's an Amazon customer as to the emails they've received in recent days about possible additional uh, payments they're going to have to make, problems with returns. And indeed, for many women who get their addresses from ASOS, maybe collect five and send four back, they won't be doing that in the future, will they? They certainly won't. And I'd say any household now that has teenage girls in it are going to feel the full effects of that first and loudly on Why the 1st of January. <laughs> exactly. No other feeling, Sinead, no other feeling. So, I, you know, up to now, I think family, people have thought, there's been a load of people out there thinking, well, it's about politicians, it's about business, mm. it's about fish. It's, you know what, this is about every single one of us. Uh, the Amazon letter really hit a kind of warning shot across the bows because they have written, they have sent an email to all their customers, which is everyone. 70% yeah. uh, of Ireland's online purchases come from the UK. Okay. So it's massive, huge. They sent a letter saying, well, you know, we, we don't have to abide by EU law anymore about returns. So return, the whole process of returns it, under EU law means that if you buy anything online at all, you can return it for any reason within 14 days and get a full refund. That's not the way the UK will see it after the 1st of January. So they'll say you can make returns, but uh, only if the goods are damaged. That was the old law. That's the way it used to be. Or only if the wrong goods were sent or it's not fit for purpose. In addition, we may, you may have to send it back to us and we, we're not going to pay for that. So you have to pay for the postage to send it back. That's going to add costs to it. 
the likes of ASOS and other retailers, um, this practice of, as you said, buying three or four items, trying them on, returning them. Well, that's fine. But you see, the problem is now that the minute they arrive at the door, they're going to be charged VAT if they're worth over 22 quid, um, customs duties if they're worth over 150. And on post, DPD, UPS are going to be charged to collect that before they hand it over to you. Now, if you've bought five items and you're returning four, You've paid all the taxes on those. Now you have to go and fill out a form with revenue to try and collect that back again. It's a nightmare. I, I just cannot see how it is going to work and how people here are, mm. you know, who are so used to this shopping and this way of doing it are going to be able to manage. Thomas Byrne, if we go back to you in Brussels, is there a danger that many consumers, despite all of the warnings we've been hearing in recent years, are going to be surprised by this? And that despite all of the campaigns that have been led by government agencies, that there are businesses that are suddenly going to find themselves struggling to deal with all the additional paperwork? Yeah, I think businesses undoubtedly will struggle. I think our businesses are relatively well prepared. There's obviously a very high awareness of what Brexit means for them, but they have no control over their counterparts in Britain uh, or indeed their trading routes unless they change them. I think Irish consumers, you're right, it's a good point. I mean, I've been making the point about online shopping. We hope customs charges won't apply if there's a trade deal, but certainly the VAT uh, will apply uh, if, you're, if you're purchasing from England. It'll be like buying products from America, which people uh, don't tend to do if they can avoid it. So this is a big change for people. And by the way, there'll be lots of other things, small inconveniences that will happen, I think, in the new year as well. Um, and we're trying to work out each and every one of them, uh, but they're not always clear. This is a big change. It's coming down the tracks very, very quickly. And there's a huge range of information uh, on the government website about this. Uh, and in the event of an ODL Brexit, there's already work underway in terms of giving help to uh, those sectors of the economy that will be particularly badly hit. There's work ongoing at an Irish level uh, and at a European level as well. But Sinead has set it out very well in terms of what, what's coming down the tracks for consumers. This is a big change. Yes, we have the common travel area. We'll be able to move over and back uh, to Britain. Uh, we'll be able to work in Britain, but still issues such as professional qualifications and their, their recognition still have to be worked out as well. So there's just a range of issues there uh, that we all will have to get our heads around. And I think it's a tragedy that Britain are leaving. Uh, and I think the best possible outcome is to have a deal here, uh, not just on trade, but on future relationship, that we can reset that relationship. They are our closest neighbour. Um, but it is, it is tragic and sad, in my opinion, as to what's happening at the moment. Sinead, what about food as well, about the imports of particular <laughs> foods, which may be a lot more expensive or we may not be able to get at all? Yeah, well, as Thomas said earlier, you know, he's talking about sausages. There's uh, uh, hundreds of foods and a lot of them might even originate here, go to the UK for packaging and added value and come back here. Uh, and the problem with fresh food and frozen food and chilled food mm. are the delays that are inevitable. I mean, they've turned the, the Kent motorway into a car park. Uh, you know, for trucks leaving leaving Britain. Um, I, I tell you, a bigger issue will be special dietary products. So people like celiacs or people who are on TPN, you know, babies mm. who are tube fed um, and some milks that come in. Even though medicines are more or less agreed and there shouldn't be a problem there, um, I, I think some of those foods, we don't want to have to rely on hardship cases and we hope that it'll all work. This should absolutely be laid down and I think it's going to be very, very stressful. And just before I go back to Kieran, what about prices? Because wasn't there an ESRI report suggesting mm. that house household 
bills for food and other things could go up by about €1,400 Euro per annum. They will, because, I mean, just in terms of, of the extra cost that Britain is going to have to add to goods to get them here, uh, and also us having to source items that we would normally import from Britain, and you'll have businesses saying, well, mm. we, I don't want to do that anymore. Now I have to import it from Spain or Italy. There's absolutely an added cost there but also in the area of financial services and financial transactions. Now, people haven't really thought about that because they don't tend to have bank accounts in England. But if you've got a pension, a private pension, lots of Irish people went over in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and, and gained a pension there. There is a deal about state pensions. So the Department of Work and Pensions and the Department of Social Protection here did a good job in making sure they would continue to be paid. Private pensions may not. They may now insist you set up an English bank account to, to have that money put into. And what about job losses here in Ireland, Kieran? Because there's particular concerns that in the food sector, mm. we won't be able to afford to export to the UK. They won't be buying billion goods. A year, so yeah. what's going to happen to all those jobs? Will there be a sort of supports and payments like we have for COVID-19 pandemic unemployment well, payments? Europe have a, have a Brexit adjustment fund of five billion. That is available uh, they've yet to for the details of that. How much is Ireland likely to get of that? Well, obviously, that's the subject of negotiation. But I think the key aspect at the moment is there are negotiations ongoing. Uh, can I just, with all the talk, um, the uh, President of the European Commission, van der Leyen, met Boris Johnson last night. Now, ironically, she had fish in the menu. I think she was probably uh, subtly giving a message. But they did come away that she used the word that there was an understanding. So I think there's enough room there for um, a deal to be struck. The, the stakes and I think what's involved, both for ourselves and Britain, like even the fact that 90% of cheddar is consumed by both countries together in terms of world cheddar, uh, it's just the, the, just the tentacles between both countries are, are so uh, diverse and so intense. It's hugely important we get a deal. Thomas Byrne, over in Brussels, how much work are you doing? to try and get a big chunk of that five billion adjustment fund for Ireland as the country most affected by the prospect of what they call a skinny deal or no deal at all. Yeah, well, actually, that's very high on the agenda today because the multi-annual financial framework which and, and the next generation EU funding was held up by a Polish and Hungarian veto uh, of an own resources decision. Now, there's been work that's gone on today and that now is resolved effectively. Uh, so that battle is over and the Brexit Adjustment Reserve proposal, I understand, will be published, I would say, next week. Uh, Irish officials have been working really closely with the European Commission and I've no doubt uh, that we should get, um, I, I think the lion's share, but certainly vastly uh, disproportionate to our population, but proportionate to uh, how this situation is affecting us, because it is for those member states and sectors most affected by Brexit. It was the Taoiseach and indeed the then Belgian Prime Minister, who worked very closely to get this into the multi-annual financial framework. There's also funding there for the border counties as well on the Peace Plus programme that will be funded jointly by the EU, the Republic and indeed the UK. Uh, and that, that's again um, green-lighted tonight. But I would say this about, you mentioned, made a point there about the negotiators. Um, I would say that the leaders of the European Union and uh, of the member states are very happy that Michel Barnier and Ursula von der Leyen take these negotiations on. And when you see the full agenda that leaders have today and tomorrow, as part from Brexit. The attitude is that uh, Michel and Ursula are doing this work for us, and member states are happy with that. And by the way, are in constant contact uh, with the Taoiseach. He had many engagements today. Uh, I had engagements today with a number of my colleagues as well. And they're very concerned about Ireland. They're happy that the protocol has been 
uh, settled. Uh, but Ireland and the single market uh, are top of the uh, priority list. There's no doubt about that. And we in Ireland depend on the single market. So uh, I think the, the interests of Ireland are very much at the top of the negotiator's agenda. And they have okay. a deep personal knowledge of the country. Thank you very much for that. We leave it there with that. My thanks to Minister Thomas Byrne and to Sinead Ryan for joining us. After the break, Dr Anthony Staines will be joining us to discuss the vaccine rollout and Kieran will be staying with us for that. Welcome back. Well, we're joined now by Tom Flavin, executive chef at the Strand Hotel in Limerick, who is a word of warning to Limerick fans ahead of this weekend's All-Ireland Senior Hurling Final. Indeed, I'd imagine there must be lots of people tempted to book into a hotel or go to a gastro restaurant to watch the hurling Sunday afternoon to be followed by the Munster Rugby match in the European Cup after that. Should they be doing that, though? Well, I think they should. I think the, the hotel is a very safe place to be. We've invested an awful lot of money in um, safety equipment. Guests and employees' safety is is definitely at, our, at the forefront of our minds. But we do ask that people will obey by the rules and take the government's advice and the health experts' advice. So it will be a time for personal responsibility, so will it, to make sure that people maintain their social distance and follow the rules set down by the hotels and restaurants and pubs? Absolutely. We like... Limerick and Waterford are really going to be in the spotlight this weekend. People are looking, they're looking out for people that are misbehaving. They're looking out for people who are not abiding by the rules. So we would ask, and we, we just ask people to just behave themselves. Like, we'd like to make it to Croke Park next year and not be locked down for another nine months. Please just abide by the rules. Yeah, how important and is it to the business that you actually have a big day like Sunday, but do it in such a way that you continue to have many more days over the next month and don't have to go through a third lockdown early in the new year? Well, it's absolutely fantastic. For the past week, we've had more than 50 staff back. It's, like, it's been a really, really tough year for everybody in hospitality, especially in, in hotels along the west coast of Ireland and in Dublin, of course. But um, to have 50 more staff back in the past week is just phenomenal it just brings it back and and we really don't want to go back there again to lockdown and how hopeful are you that something like the vaccine will persuade the american tourists in particular to come back to the west of ireland in the new year oh i'm sure they will and it'll be great and hopefully by st patrick's day next year we're, we're hoping that people will have the confidence to return like it's it's detrimental to the to the whole of the west of ireland not having the tourists this year it's it's just it's beyond belief, really, what's happened. But with everybody behaving themselves, not only next Sunday, but for the next two or three weeks over the Christmas period, please, God, we will be, we will be ready to, to welcome them all back next year. And finally, Limerick, I think, are pretty hot favourites to beat Waterford in the final on Sunday to repeat the Munster final victory. How important would that be to Limerick if it was to happen? Oh, it would be fantastic. Like, absolutely fantastic. Like, Limerick have a very, very strong team. They've put an awful lot of work in over the past five or six years. Um, it would mean everything to Limerick, but it really would, needs for everybody to behave themselves in the aftermath and make sure that everybody stays safe. Thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Thank you, Matt.
Finnegan's Kieran O'Donnell has stayed with us. We're also joined by Dr. Anthony Staines. And Anthony, there'd be great excitement, particularly in Waterford, if they were to win, given that it's over half a century since they last mm. did so. Is it really realistic to expect that there wouldn't be celebrations, people out in the streets to welcoming a team returning home after winning? There, there will be celebrations. And if I had to choose, I would go for Waterford. I, I like both cities, but I have more friends in Waterford than in Limerick. But there will be celebrations. The celebrations outside are not a big issue because you don't get much viral transmission, especially in an Irish winter with winds of heaven blowing around your ears. And I think celebrating inside, the question is, is it crowded or not? If you're going into someone's house and there's 10 people there, I would say go out again. If you're going into a hotel or a pub and it looks very crowded, go out again. If you're going into a hotel like that gentleman was describing and they've, they're doing everything right, they're keeping people far apart, then that's grand. That's, that's, that's the way to do it. But outside is best if people can manage, if the weather Permits. That sounds like a good argument which Dr. Colm Henry wouldn't accept earlier about allowing small crowds into Croke Park for the hurling final and for the yeah. football final the following week. Leave families in to watch their loved ones play on the pitch. I heard, I heard Colm's piece and I have to say I agree with him. There's a set of restrictions in place and we, we have done relatively well with those restrictions. You compare us to other countries across Europe. The number of cases we have has come down quite a lot. And we, we're fairly clear the economic damage of this virus is related to the number of cases. Now, my colleagues and I would like to see the number of cases down a lot further, you know, down to where we were at in the summer, where we had four or five cases a day and then eventually down to zero. But the fewer cases we have, the better. And one of the things that Colin was saying is the hospital system is under severe stress. The hospital system is always under stress because it's under-resourced. But at the moment, COVID is really pressing in on everyone because it reduces capacity. Never mind the beds that are taken up by seriously ill people with COVID. But the way you have to work in a hospital, just as the way you have to work in a pub, the way you have to work in a restaurant with COVID reduces capacity. So just on the hospital issue, mm. you say under-resourced and the rest of it. Is there not an argument now that at the moment we don't have the massive numbers on trolleys, mm. the lengthy waits in the emergency department, because necessity has forced the hospital system to adapt and to deliver better outcomes? I think what has happened is that the hospital level of activity has gone down and waiting lists have gone up. So an awful lot of elective work has been postponed. Some of it has been transferred to the private sector, which is fine if you can afford it. Some of it's being done through the National Treatment Purchase Fund, which again is fine if, if you've got access to it. But a lot of it's just not happening. So a lot of the treatment waiting lists are just getting longer and longer and longer. Karen O'Donnell, that sounds like we're storing up an enormous problem for mm. 2021 and beyond in managing these cases in our mm. hospitals, but also perhaps leading to worse outcomes from people's ill health. COVID is going to put pressure on the, on the health system. That's a given. That's why we have to get the, the virus under control. Uh, it certainly has a situation where lists have gone up because by definition, uh, the acute cases around COVID are going to take priority. I would, the virus is very much coming under control. We have a vaccine very much on the horizon. The Minister for Health has stated that we'll have the vaccine coming in place from January, which I very much welcome. 
but and I think it's it's hugely important that we continue to wherever possible get back to an elective work as well. Any anxiety though that the rollout of the vaccine will not necessarily go to plan? I mean, how are you prepared for a situation whereby if there's any foul-ups in the actual delivery of the vaccine and the public reacts against that? Well, there's two aspects to that. Firstly, there's a, a strategy in terms of delivery of the vaccine being brought to government tomorrow. Uh, they're hoping to roll it out next week. And secondly, there are contingency plans in place. If issues did arise where it was difficult to get the, the vaccines in, they have contingency measures in place in terms of ensuring they can be by uh, flown in. I wouldn't have any worries in that area. I think the key feature is that when the vaccine is rolled out, the people... Uh, I think it's true education that people take the vaccine because it won't be the ultimate, in my view, short-term panacea on the vaccine because there's still going to be issues where COVID will still be about. I think we still have to do the basics. But Anthony, if we have mm. a health system that has been the focus of enormous criticism over the years and which has lengthy waiting lists mm. for procedures, would that not imply that if the same people are in charge of rolling out the vaccine, we could have problems? I'm not too worried about that. I'm, I'm quite confident HSE have the people to deliver this and deliver it well. Why are you confident, given everything else that we know about the health the, system? The problems with the health system are political. I mean, I will be very direct about that with Kieran. Mm. We, we have a health system which is a very particular shape and it doesn't, it's the wrong shape. The health services as such can't change that. That's a political decision. Mm. It's a political decision to say we will move care to primary care. We have a policy. Mm. We have the Sloan Care policy. But the Department of Health and the political classes have to action it, make it happen. Yeah, but if care. that means, if you're criticising that we're great for doing plans but poor on delivery, yeah. would you not fear that we'll have a plan for the rollout of the vaccine and yet again we'll mess up the delivery? We could and there will be problems with delivery. Things will go wrong at some point, is it's a fairly complicated plan, but it's a single item. There's, and there's some very smart people working out the logistics of this, people from inside and outside the service. It's going to take a long time. I'm not sure people have wrapped their head around how long it will take to bring life back to close to normal. Tony Shelley of Radcur was talking today about things went back to normal in the summer, going on foreign holidays, being able to, people are looking to book concerts. They're talking mm. about going to matches again from May, June, July next year. Do you think, uh, is that realistic? No. No? No, God Why no. not? Because we, need, we reckon that we, we know we need to vaccinate more than 65% of the population. There's absolute evidence that that's true. We think we need to vaccinate 75% or more, and we don't know how much more, we won't know, to stop the virus circulating. We, get, we gave out 2 million doses of flu vaccine in 2009 in six months. That would immunise a million people, because most of these vaccines, it's two doses per person. So that's the scale you're talking to, to hit 4 million people, 5 million people. Well, that we, suggests, we are talking about that your party leader is giving people false hope by talking about returning to normal by next summer. He's not, because we have to get back to some level of normality. We know the vaccine is coming. We must set targets. Uh, even in the transport committee, we are looking at people to be able to resume flying in some way, obviously with increased testing. Uh, so I think the Tornis to leave radical... Do you want tourists coming into the country? If they can come in safely, yes. Uh, but I think it requires 
uh, a very strict regime in terms of pre-departure testing coming in here. And also, uh, I think it's hugely important under Rocator Farms and contract tracing. And can I just say, with Tom Flam, can I wish Limerick all the best on, on Sunday? I think we'll win the All-Ireland. Oh, all politics is local. Yeah, it's, it's very, very important. But very quickly, yeah. with very little time, yeah. I mean, are you happy with people flying into the country before we have vaccination programme of a lot of people coming in for Christmas? Well, the European Disease Prevention Control have stated that uh, fly, people flying are far less percentage than within the community. And I think if we've proper pre-departure testing in place, along with locating and contract tracing strictly uh, in place, I think it's it needs to happen. Away, Anthony. Are you happy with people flying into the country for Christmas? We're going to have what they have in the States after Thanksgiving. We're going to have a substantial rise in cases. So if you're thinking about travelling to Ireland over Christmas, if you have to come, come. If you don't have to come, stay at home, come in by Zoom. It's safer for you. It's safer for your family. OK, thank you very much to both thanks. of you. That is all the time we have for tonight. And my thanks to all of our guests for joining us. I'll be back on radio tomorrow today, FM. Kira will be here next Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Until then, enjoy all the sport and have a great weekend. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.